a person to give ego massages. <laughs> so they'd come up, when this, this person would come up behind me and stroke my back and go, you're the funniest man in the world. When we hired people, every interview I had with everyone from, from PA on up, we talked about family life. Look, the funniest writers I've worked with came from probably the, the most dysfunctional backgrounds. When we created the show, we flipped a coin. I won the flip and maybe I got written by Drew and Phil and it was created by Phil and Drew. So we okay. split them up. Okay, every season we would trade off. When I look back on the four years of that production, it, it took five years in terms of development. It was the most fun I've ever had in my 25 years of writing. I'm excited and thrilled for today's episode because we have with us an experienced and renowned writer Drew Wappen. He's the co-creator of Good Luck Charlie and a fun fact for all my Indian listeners out there, Good Luck Charlie was adapted for Indian audience on Disney and is known to us as Best of Luck Nikki, which I personally grew up watching. Besides from that, he has also worked on shows like Rodney, What I Like About You, and Sony with a Chance. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Technical issues happen all the time. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> That's the rule of the internet. So nice to see you. How's family? Everyone healthy and well? Yes, thank you for asking. How about you? You good? I'm actually in the other part of India. Where right? are you in India? I'm currently, you know, in my college room. My exact location is Manipal, Karnataka. What, what's the closest, biggest area? It's Mumbai or Bombay. Um, okay, great. Yeah. It's it's a nice place, you know, there are just beaches all around. So I'm just having the time of my life, you know, writing songs. And... Fantastic. My kid just finished writing a song. So I'm I'm very much in the mode of uh, the creative spirit. So I, I that's great. Very cool. Awesome. You know, good for him. It's great to see that how the creative talent has passed through. And great. yeah, <laughs> and I was really thinking about this yesterday that you know, current times, we see that a lot of, you know, disturbing things are happening all around us. Doesn't it feel like the best time where we need something like Good Luck Charlie that can unite people together? You know, maybe for like 30 hey. minutes, you know? That's very kind of you to say. When we created the show, there were some difficult... It seems like the world is always going through difficult times, first of all. There's always going to be change. And one of the reasons I certainly got into half hour writing was just to give you a little brief respite from the daily realities of what's going on. With children's television, we also particularly keep in mind uh, not to remind them of, of the realities. And uh, a lot of times parents, you know, Good Luck Charlie was one of those shows where parents could sit down with their kids. So at the same time, we always tried to give stories that would uh, maybe reach above the intended demographic. And uh, at least, you know, in the same way that Pixar movies, not to say that we're uh, on that level of writing, but, you know, we want to appeal to adults and to kids. And, and yes, give people just just time to breathe from all the craziness that's going on in the world. And the boy, way you, you have 
done that with you know good luck charlie it's just exceptional and i remember my days i first got introduced to good luck charlie through its the indian version of that show best of luck nikki and sure. i have such great memories you know we cousins would just huddle together and watch the show and it was a great time to be alive and i'm personally grateful to have this present moment with the co-creator of good luck charlie you know thank you for making this happen hey thank you for having me um it always amazes me when tv shows cross cultural boundaries and at the same time it doesn't surprise me because you know life is universal especially uh, as a new parent having kids as a kid growing up in a family there's there's so many entry points into good luck charlie and it fascinates me to see how it was able to permeate cultural boundaries now of course with with best of luck nikki they did make changes to that show i i don't know if you're aware like bob is a uh, an electrician i believe right right <laughs> so there's odd uh, little storylines that bring come to mind like there's there was an episode where bob's on the floor smelling uh, some kind of animal feces and you know <laughs> most electricians don't have that kind of nose so yeah it's interesting how those stories actually get how they change culturally you know, for sure you know. and that's the beauty of it i feel one of the key reasons that it appeals to you know, people all around the globe is that these experiences even though we can't you know just directly relate with them but still there is something common to them that binds us together and that was also one of the things i was talking with he is the writer of diary of a wimpy kid so oh, great Yes. Okay. I was talking with him. He also has his work, you know, read in all the countries all over the world. It's really nice to see that how this connected family type of feeling was also in between the show cast and crew. I heard I was watching the reunion which happened I believe last year mm-hmm. of the entire acting crew and they said that the thing with good luck charlie was that normally when we act on shows during lunch you know writers have their own group the lighting people have their own group but in good luck charlie writers were sitting with lighting people and it was a nice diverse experience and i'm curious to know that what else did you or all of you combined try to do to make the writers room or in general the environment much different from other shows That's a great question. Many people will tell you that their show is like a family. That's that's a common thing you hear. What made I think it a little different on our show is well, first of all it's a children's show, so you have to create a protective environment for kids to work in every day. We have minors coming in every morning doing adult work. with in a in a major union with with lots of regulations and rules you you have to protect them you have to provide an environment it, it's no different than being a parent in a family phil and i the co-creator we were new parents at the time so we were sort of writing what we know and i think we maybe unconsciously i mean certainly we we brought that ethic into that or that ethos into the the writing room from there it permeated out onto the stage when we hired people every interview i had with everyone from from pa on up 
we talked about family life. We talked about, I got to know people in an interview. So, wow. you know, yeah, so it's a little different. Um, and not to say that I hired everyone on that show. Certainly I didn't, but I knew everyone on that show by the end of the four years. Um, I was one of the writers who was on the set a lot, you know, working with rewriting on the stage and making sure the words uh, manifested itself in, onto the stage. And, you know, it was a really, the environment from day one was, I, I tried to drop my ego and, and mm -hmm. that's not easy. So allowing me to do that allowed me to be a little more receptive to other people's ideas. Half hour television is very collaborative. Yes, we were very, we, as writers, we were sticklers to get the words we, we wrote, but we always allowed the actors to give us their takes. We always were open to their line rewrites. We, we took uh, suggestions from cameramen for story. Anyone who could provide story for me was essential. You know, everyone on our show comes from a family. Most of them had kids. Many stories come from many places. You know, certainly the writers came. We would spend the first two hours of every day writing, uh, uh, sitting around the table, talking about our family life from the night before. That hopefully would generate stories. But oftentimes, stories came from many places. Uh, I, I was in, in constant contact with Mia's mother throughout the whole process of, you know, we hired Mia when she was six months old. When she was acting on television, I guess she was around nine months old, but I was constantly talking to Mia. She would write us letter emails saying, yesterday Mia stole the, the garage remote. And that gave us an idea. Oh, what if she's pushing buttons that opens up the garage door, a bicycle gets stolen, you know, <laughs> anything, Anywhere we could grab an idea, it came from. And, and I think that helps the family environment. I feel like, you know, when people are respected for more than just a job title, um, I, I think I allowed people to feel comfortable in the environment. Not I, I should say we, because it was a very, it's a we. I really we. like that, how you were able to create that feeling of welcomeness among all the people of the crew, like actors and people behind the scenes as well. I think that yeah. really allows people to then bring the best in themselves also, give their 100% to the project and, you know, not try to take any shortcuts even when they are tired. Exactly. Was, was there necessarily enough time to create that environment? How can one create such environment when there are quick deadlines? You certainly aren't focused on creating that environment because it is very pressure packed. You, you, you don't have any time to make anything perfect from the story to the environment you're creating. Each week you have to package something and produce it and show it. And you're always working to, uh, to, to produce shows. So outside of the stress of, of producing shows, you, you also need to replenish. So yes, lunches, a lot of downtime is spent intermingling with everyone on the show. There's 400 families to interrogate every morning. That's how I looked at it. Yeah. And, and you know what? We had a special cast. I want to give credit to that cast because 
certainly we can, as writers and producers, we can create an environment, but that cast, they own the stage. They create the environment of the stage and the director. We, we had many directors, but our main director, Bob Coher, was, he came from the stand-up world, from the improv world. He just created a super fun set to come down to every morning. Okay. Yeah. Bob once hired a, a, a person to give ego massages. <laughs> so they come up when this, this person would come up behind me and stroke my back and go, you're the funniest man in the world. You're the best, <laughs> you're, you're the best writer. It was, you know, that is fun. That's fun. I can't say, you know, there was a ton of stress on the show, but when I look back on the four years of that production, it, it took five years in terms of development. It was the most fun I've ever had in my 25 years of writing. So I had been on other people's shows, picking and choosing what I wanted, what, you know, Phil and I really took the best of every TV show, what we learned from the, the creators of all the shows before us to create what we did. And, and to be honest, I think you know, our show was the first show that in my whole career that went the distance. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like we just really learned a lot from the previous shows we had been on. Hollywood's not a nurturing environment. Someone once said they it doles out more insecurity than love. And, and that's that's true. Many of my idols, I see, you know, Johnny Carson, Robin Williams, and, you know, the kind of life they led you know i'm a fan of their career but personally they were suffering maybe i've seen many comedians also talk about it now they are much more open about it that how childhood instances of bullying or seeing their parents split up at a young age that kind of leaves a scar inside but at the same time it's that anger frustration that inspires their comedic side is that the yeah. same thing that goes on in the comedy writing world or are writers mostly happy people that's a that's interesting you know in my career I've been on maybe I don't know how many shows let's say 15 shows maybe I would say look the funniest writers I've worked with came from probably the the most dysfunctional backgrounds so I would agree with that that there's a little uh darkness that leads to hilarity. I mean, Shakespeare said comedy is tragedy plus time. And um, certainly a lot of the funniest people I've worked with had childhoods that were quite difficult. Um, having said that, myself, I've had a charmed, nothing dark, nothing, you know. So, you know, quality cream always rises to the top in terms of writing and, and anything in terms of anything creative. So you get many personalities. So I don't know how to answer that. I have always felt that comedians live long because they're laughing long. And I don't know if that means they're happy or I don't know. It's a difficult question. Um, certainly you touch on something that I've always wanted to talk about, which, you know, Mental health in this business is never discussed, and it's it's very difficult to uh, manage mental health and produce a good television show. So yeah, those are issues that do need to be addressed in this business. Um, 
But, uh, you know, getting back to your original question, I, I would say that stand-ups like, like a Robin Williams, those people tend to have had really difficult, I don't know how to, if the word's difficult, dark, or just break through to their hilarity. I was talking with the showrunner of Family Guy in my episode five, and he said that we look for writers who have a lot of stuff to work out with. Yeah, and the way they exert all that sort of past is by making fun of each other. They said Family Guy writers' room feels like a adult daycare center. <laughs> Everyone is just ripping each other apart. And it's nice to see. And I can only imagine what would Good Luck Charlie writers' room would be like. Everyone just sharing their childhood memories. And, you know, was it... Uh, challenging room where you had to constantly prove yourself or was it a more kind of an inclusive it was a comfortable room to attend okay there are rooms i've been in that were you're intimidated you you have to like be a sniper and get a joke in here and there there are other rooms where i felt like i can just bullshit around and, <laughs> and i can waste other people's time there are certain rooms where it's like we need to laser focus and pitch jokes or pitch dialogue we don't have time so it just depends where you're at when when i think of the the room the the four years on because our staff stayed pretty there wasn't a lot of changes in our staff over the four years um it was a dirty, dark room. A lot of the stuff, <laughs> a lot of the stuff that did not get into the show is not uh, safe for work, but at the same time was hilarious. These are the smartest whips, the most whip smart intellectual people. The jokes would be they could they they find your weakness and just a laser pinpoint joke right at you know. One time I pitched. Well, no, I won't say that. <laughs> okay. There, there are many jokes that uh, don't get into the script that are just very uh, cut to the core of who you are as a person. That's what makes it funny. I mean, you know, you have to be able to laugh at yourself. You have to have a thin skin in this business. They're always, people are always telling you, change this, do that. You have to just be malleable. And, and I think being able to take tough jokes and, things like that off the, you know, it's good. It's healthy. Was it easy to maintain that level of humor, which every member of the family can enjoy, especially in a writer's room? Because I've seen some of my favorite live action animated and all these shows, they started out as shows that would unite the entire family. But later on, I saw them turned out to more edgy kind of humor. Sure. That, that's the difficulty you face as shows progress, you know, shows have to grow. We always tried to keep our characters the same. And, and certainly when we created our, when we, when we pitched the uh, finale episode, we watched the beginning episodes to make sure the show, you know, because characters have to grow, but at the same time in sitcoms, they don't change. You know, you're either the the intellect, the dumb guy, the fact, whatever. There, there, there's just there are these typecasts. You know, you can change in an episode, but over the course of the season, you're the same character. In terms of how the comedy, it waxes and wanes. You know, it's like a muscle. You know, there were times where there were days, weeks where I was done i was tapped out especially at the end of the season where you're just trying hard to 
you're, you're scrounging. But there's always some other guy at the end of the table who pitches something hilarious. So it's like little muscles that are always working, you know, and that's the magic of the writer's room. You know, the room might be quiet for a half an hour because everyone's thinking. It's not like you would imagine, you know, you you probably think of it as whip smart jokes here and there. And it, it's a lot of times you're just focused on an area you're thinking and uh, and then magic happens. So to, to sum it up, I think a lot of creativity bursts of it are at, happen at the beginning of a season. You have lots of ideas. You're refreshed from the off season towards the end of the season. You're, you're trying to just put your cobbling it together to get to the end, to get to the finish line. And, and I think that cycle just repeats itself every year. Uh, it certainly there were I, season two, or maybe it was three, the network gave us 30 episodes to write. And, and that, that's, that's a great credit to the success of the show. But at the same time, when you're used to doing 22 or maybe 24 now you have to do 30 in the same time span. It's a pressure. It's pressure. There, there were, there were weeks, there were episodes where I guess Phil would uh, write the script in a week. Writers would create from nothing over a weekend, come in and say, here's something, a chunk of what we can do use. Let's, let's cobble together a script this week with what, with what I've done. So and you know, that happens the best at the end. Yeah, That's and the yeah. best part is that still, as a viewer, it didn't seem like the quality of the episodes, you know, sh got shrunk down or anything. It always uh, seemed to remain consistent. And That's, yeah. one can tell that a series is a super hit when 30 second, 40 second clips on YouTube get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of views, because people relate with it and it gets stuck in our mind and having written many of those moments yourself, have you observed some sort of pattern emerge that maybe when everyone in the room is improvising, someone comes up with this golden moment that remains stuck in our mind or is it more of a solitary process? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, as you were talking, it brought to mind the moments of magic on the show. There was a time where the, the Mia's mother told me, she started writing and said, Mia's toddling, she's beginning to walk. So we thought, wow, if we can capture the moment of her standing up and literally walking, how can we make that into a great episode? So. We actually did an episode, it was a baby race episode, and it was magic. She literally, it, there was a lot of green screen. We had the mother all in green trying to coax Mia to come to. It was a baby race where two babies are side by side and they're crawling to a finish line. Right. And script called for Mia to be way behind. The baby's about, she's about to lose the race. And then Mia's, Charlie's supposed to stand up and run. And it was like 20 seconds of film. It, it just happened. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was a moment of pure magic. Like what would we have done ha had we not been able to capture that moment? We'd have to, we wouldn't have had the script. We, I, I don't know what kind of rewrite, maybe we would have done a rewrite where Mia loses the race. And so do you know that in advance, once you get hold of something that 
makes you really laugh and you think this is a good scene does it feel to you that you know it will get stuck in the viewer's mind or is it a surprise to you see that that particular moment remains with the viewers it i'm always surprised by what viewers take to and i i could never guess what is going to be good <laughs> or not you only have to you only can do what makes you laugh and what what you enjoy what i like about you is that not only did you work on the show that constitutes the first five words of my sentence but also you are a true collaborator since the start of your career and your work with phil baker like you described you observed all the television sitcoms before you and that's when you came up with good luck charlie was this particular concept remained in you for a really long time or did you how did you basically pitch it to the network and were they welcoming towards something like this i do recall an early meeting where we talked about they 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 wanted a a big family like a eight is enough type of family. they wanted a big family and i th- i remember phil pitching something in the room of putting his baby on a on the di- on the washing machine to to get her to fall asleep on the dryer you know and that moment made the president laugh in the room <laughs> those are the moments once a president laughs everyone below them is allowed to laugh you know <laughs> and and they spark to that idea of oh these kids these guys Phil and Drew are new parents they they these are i think it was done, I, i don't remember actually how it got pitched out but that moment allowed them to say we want to work with you on something and from that we came up with good luck charlie i do remember that the first draft that we wrote went straight up to the top it was one of the quickest scripts so it had very little rewriting that they needed to do and it it and it happened pretty quickly if i recall it was right after the writer strike i don't really know why good luck charlie was um bought when it was when but i just know that because it came from inside us it 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 was what we were living several of the lines in the pilot came from what my kid said as i was putting him down to bed um you know those are it's just magic so they knew that they had something you know they they, For sure. they it was a lot of trust on the network but at the same time we delivered on what was a basic pitch i mean kids raising kids parents having accident children and having to go back to work there's nothing magical about that but the execution and uh you know all the what we brought to it was was what made it magical it's interesting i still don't today know you know why that show because we've created other shows that didn't go it's like why what is it about that that resonated it was the one that really as we said at the beginning of this whole thing we we all come from families right. some of us parents all of us are children uh so we have entry points into this show you know yeah in your career what do you think leads to the longevity of a show what do you think can tell you instantly when someone just says the log line describes a show yep. in two three sentences that will it be a show that viewers would appreciate or will it be something that would subside after some time 
Well, it's a many that's that 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 question has many answers. So I would start by saying good 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 writing, great casting. I think casting directors don't get enough credit. You know, putting a cast together and talented acting, direction. So all your top of the line people really just conform the voice. They bring so much to the show. In terms of what what allows a show to to live, it it, it involves marketing. It involves um, timing. How do you get your your show heard out of the noise of all that? Now we have streaming. There's thousands of shows, so it's really it's a combination of business and creative. What makes a show go? Uh, you know, it's it's execution. You know, after the first year of the show, the network pulled back and let us do more. The network was very hands on in the first year they they wanted they they know their especially disney they know their brand so they really you know they we had many edicts that went into the creating of an episode they were very much into technology we we did a butt dialing episode where you know your new cell phone you keep butt dialing people i just from a, a lot we did a helicopter remote control helicopter now these things sound old you know with 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 ai and and all of this but yeah there's many things that go into to to a show you know network television shows versus streaming shows i'd say the day of the week the hour that you're on if you're on after a hit show you're you're going to have a better chance right um, let's do this so thing you know if i pitch you two three lines of a show can you tell me on a scale of 10 how likely it is to be you know put on screen okay yeah. it goes as follows an intriguing look into the lives of four high school students not backbenchers who relieve some or the other personal or family conflict by coming together creating their own family and making fun of everyone including each other and go on to live an adventurous school life it's an uh, animated comedy animated okay so when you pitch animated shows to me i want to hear why it has to be animated i didn't hear that in your show in your pitch um it also sounded too broad i want to hear what makes it different from every other family show if it's not going to be um if it's more of a bobs burger than a than a futurama you know is if it's about like a grounded family or is it about is it going to what why animated is what i'd want to know to that mm-hmm. then i'd want to know uh you know who's your audience and who would what network would you pitch that to I, you know abc doesn't do comedies nbc doesn't do comedies um so i don't think that show would go i think it's there's not enough focus on the on the logline loglines are super difficult you you should be able to understand you should be able to to see where five years of television comes from a logline i like the honesty you know there goes my you know hundreds of hours of writing the script the other thing is is nobody knows anything <laughs> there's two <laughs> things william goldman said structure is everything and nobody knows anything so maybe if you if you wrote that script then it's not a logline it's something more visual that i can get an idea of that's what i would tell you if if you were really passionate about it i'd say spec it out 
it but is. no, I do not think a network would buy that in the room. It is actually based on, you know, real life instance. I remember in eighth grade, I used to be the super nerdy kid and uh-huh. I was quite afraid and various things, you know, I had things going on in family and personally, you know, and I found this group of friends. There were three other people. They also had some of the other issue they were dealing with and we never touched on it. We just joked about each other, joked about what happened with us, with our families and all this. And we bonded together so much. They literally made me fearless. We would just go and sometimes bunk classes, play sports and, you know, visit different corners of our high school. And that kind of opened me up and said, you know, everything doesn't have to be so depressing, you know the reason I like comedy so much and that show which I just pitched you the log line it contains R-rated comedy because we joked we joked about disability we joked about things that I could never even imagine laughing about but they were so funny they were such great improvisers that we would do this the entire day and I do think that comedy stands up to life you know when life is just punching you down comedy is like you know I'll make fun of it you know I'll just stand Mm -hmm. in between and that's what I liked about this and how you know people like you are creating such impactful series because even right now I don't know why it is that I just don't feel talk shows sitcoms they just have that much influence that you know shows like Johnny Carson Friends or even Good Luck Charlie had I don't know what's the reason behind it. There's a cycle to shows. I, you know, certainly, I don't know the the short and I don't know the answer to that. I do know that different voices are are being allowed to uh, tell their stories now. The whole woke world is happening also in the entertainment business, and that's changing the kind of stories we tell. Um, you know, sitcom. It it used to be. Set up punchline, big bright cameras, three the living. I don't see a lot of that much anymore. It's happening. It's it's still very vibrant in the in the children's world. Disney has committed itself to the three four camera sitcom, but the networks today are really just trying to chase for. They're just trying to grab. It's it's narrow casting now. It's they're they're trying to dissuade you from watching Apple Plus and all the you know. It's so it's getting harder for shows to find their voice. Okay, so yes, the networks still pick up sitcoms, but they don't give them a chance anymore. They one two three chances out of the gate. You see, and then they dump it or they stop airing it and they throw it on in the summer or they they screw it up with the with the people need to know where they can find a show. And I think it's just getting harder for shows to find their voice. And maybe that's what you're noticing is 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 happening with with new television. But I don't know. I don't know. It certainly makes sense. You know, I've been poking you with all these questions, you know, right now. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And it's just, I sometimes feel that, you know, all these shows that came, you know, before us, I think at that time, people just had the sense to focus. Now we live in a place where there's so much information. But at the same time, I read somewhere that 
specifically good luck charlie was based on a it was a low concept show and i've yeah. heard other showrunners like greg daniel say that one of the key predictors of the longevity of a show is that it has a high concept sound but it is a low concept and to this day i don't know what he means by that and it well, would really appreciate if you could just explain that in your experience i think what he's talking about is the execution i mean if i look at all of greg daniel's shows he did king of the hill was he part of the office did he yeah. do the office? and he's simpsons so he what else does he, he's done he's done so much good stuff okay that's a, honestly, that's a question I'm. I think Greg should answer. <laughs> only, uh, only if he agrees to be know, on the podcast. He, he sold enough shows to 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 the so that I can say he's probably right. I don't know what he means by, but you know, if he can convince a network that they're buying a high concept show, and he can deliver a low concept show. Good, to, good no, for Greg. It's actually <laughs> a low concept show. He was saying, but it just has a high concept sound. Yeah, I mean that's sort of it's called sizzle. That's that's like what you're. That's you're in the room. You're a salesman. I I don't know what he means by that. I I uh, I always thought Good Luck Charlie was just a a low concept show that had that had great execution. And you mentioned how the the level of writing maintained itself and I would give the credit of that to my partner Phil Baker because he really made sure at the end of the day that the scripts were one voice you know he would you know as I said it's very collaborative but he was the last person to look at that script and and send it out for so, sure and yeah. before asking the you know, easy questions like uh, what did you both see in each other, the complementary qualities? I first would like to ask whose name comes first? Is it Phil <laughs> Baker and Drew Wappen or so Drew Wappen and well, Phil uh, Baker? Well, as I said at the beginning, we, we, we tried to keep ego out of this. So we when we created the show, we flipped a coin. I won the flip and maybe I got written by drew and phil and it was created by phil and drew so we okay split them up. okay every season we would trade off so season one it was drew and phil season two it was phil and drew we constantly switched off okay so no one gets to be that apollo astronaut who stays no, inside the no, ship who doesn't get to step true. on the moon <laughs> we're, we're both riding each other's coattails both get one step on the moon that's yeah. that's a good way to yeah. approach things yeah and the 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 one thing I do want to give credit to was our showrunner Dan Staley. He he was the the eight hundred pound gorilla. He was the person that the network needed some gravitas because we hadn't run a show before, and so we had worked with Dan on three shows prior to that, and we had a great. The three of us had a really unique, comfortable, great, divided relation working relationship. So I want to make sure Dan gets some props too. I've actually read about his history and background and in the kind of accomplishments that he has uh, achieved to, since the time he was in advertising till here. Yeah. I mean, he He's must be clear. having a terrific work ethic. He's an incredible writer. He uh, work ethic. I mean, we all I think all writers have to have a good work ethic, but he's just a, he's so funny and smart. 
I, I can't speak highly enough of Dan and his ex-partner, Rob Long. Um, they, they, they really started, they launched our careers. Our first few shows were, were by, written by them. And uh, we certainly learned a lot from them. Gosh, you know, don't pitch questions, pitch solutions. <laughs> right. I even heard one of the writers say that all you need in a room are just problem solvers. You know, the people <laughs> who can fix things. And do you ever, you know, maybe reunite with Phil Baker, your ex-writing partner, and just, you know, talk about how good were those days, you know, writing and working in short deadlines, but at the same time, looking back at it. Yeah, uh, you know, we just texted each other the other day. Uh, we still keep in touch. Uh, we're, we're super good friends and very close. Um, will we write together? You know, if Good Luck Charlie had a reunion, I could see us getting back together. But, um, you know, we've, we've sometimes in order to grow up together, you have to grow apart. And I do feel like we have grown apart. And uh, he's, he may be, I think he may be done writing. He's, he's had such a long storied career. Um, and I, um, you know, as I said, there's, there's, it's time for new voices, new stories to be told. And, and I'm just so grateful to have been led into that club for 25 years and, and to have been able to, to taste it a little of the success. And I, I, I'm kind of ready for it to, to pass on the baton. And, you know, I'm always going to write, I'm always going to do, I'm always going to be doing my own projects, but I think, um, I think I'm, I, you know, I don't see us getting back together. No, I, I think it's, it's over, but. Um, Still the kind of we'll legacy, the legacy that both of you have left in not only in entertainment industry, but to influence the lives of, you know, maybe of this random hairy guy from India who watched your show and could relate with it. I think that's an incredible achievement and props to both of you for making that happen. And just to, you know, end this interview, I was genuinely interested in knowing that were you always into comedy writing since high school, just working in, you know, school newspapers or something like that? Because I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I read somewhere that you had a degree in, I think, biochemistry. Yeah, I, I got a degree in biochemistry from UC Berkeley, and I wanted to be a doctor. I took the MCATs. And I worked in a hospital in the emergency room. I worked for my professor in a lab. And um, junior year, I had my writing. I, I, I always wrote. I had a journal. I always wrote short stories and things like that. Growing up in San Francisco, I never thought I'd enter the entertainment business. It's a, it's a, it's a long, circuitous route that got me there. But once I really decided medical school wasn't for me, I ended up not applying to medical school because I got a job in advertising. Um, that brought me to LA. Before I knew it, I'm at a studio, Lorimar Telepictures. I read a script. I'm like, I can do that. Um, you know, life has, there are many paths to your career. Um, and was it no, easy to convince the people around you? It was a difficult time for, well, certainly when I gave up medicine, my parents were like, 
a little bit because I was uh, I was not I was like a B student med, uh, biochemist. I wasn't super smart and I wasn't and it, I I probably would have gotten into medical school and it would have been my life would have been hell. Um, and my parents were sort of happy that I didn't do that. They but after about four years of being in Hollywood trying to make it work, um, they were worried. But I always had an army inside. Once I made the decision to be a writer, I, that's all I wanted to do. It was a burning passion. I'd never felt anything like that in my life. This is what I wanted to do. I liked, I knew what writers did. I didn't want to clock in and, and wear a suit, but I was happy to work 24 hours sitting around a table full of jelly beans and, and, <laughs> and lattes, you know, that that's, I, I wanted that lifestyle. And I, and I knew that lifestyle could, if I was allowed in the club would, would, would permit me to, to, to live my dreams. And, and it really did launch my life. So I'm so grateful to have been led into that club. It was a, it's a hard um, a climb, but once you, you make it, it's, it's so worth it. And I just, I would tell anybody who wants to get into writing, just keep writing and, and go for it. And with this, we end the episode 15 of Brevieras with the amazing Drew Wappen. If you are listening to it on Apple Podcast or Spotify, feel free to share your five-star review. And once again, thank you for listening. Feel free to check out the video version of it on YouTube and Instagram. Have a great day.